Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping at our usual time this week on Thursday, November 1st at 10.30 a.m. As always, news can happen fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Good morning, everybody. Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. And Margot Sanger-Katz of The New York Times. Hi, guys. After the news, we will have our Bill of the Month interview with Barbara Fader Ostroff, who has the tale of how a skin rash led to a $48,000 bill for allergy tests. Then we will come back and do our extra credits. And starting this week, we are not only a podcast, but also a broadcast. Our new partner, Newsy, will be taping the podcast each week and editing it into a half-hour show that will air on Sundays. You can find Newsy on most cable systems or online at Newsy.com. Okay, let's get to the news. I want to spend most of our time previewing Election Day, but first, it is November 1st, and that means happy open enrollment for the ACA. I don't think any of us would have predicted six months ago that premiums would be trending down and the number of insurance plans being offered on the Obamacare marketplace would be going up. What do people need to know most about buying their own insurance for 2019? I think there are actually a lot of things that people need to know, and my most important piece of advice would be Uh, It really depends on what your situation is. So if you are someone who is relatively low income, you earn less than 200% of the federal poverty level, you should go to your marketplace, you should shop on your state's insurance marketplace, and you really want to look for a silver plan, the lowest cost silver plan that covers the doctors and hospitals that you care about. Because of the way that uh, Obamacare works, you end up getting really good protection from co-payments and deductibles if you buy that particular plan. And because there are more choices, you will have more options. If you earn a little bit more, you are sort of in a more middle class income bracket where uh, you get some subsidy, but not that extra wraparound subsidy, then you really actually have to look around. In a lot of markets, you might be better off buying a gold plan. So that's a plan with relatively lower cost sharing than a silver plan. Uh, And that's for complicated reasons that have to do with policy changes the Trump administration made last year. If you're in that income category, you might also qualify for a bronze plan. That's a plan that has higher deductibles and cost sharing, but you might be able to get one for free. So if you're the kind of person who feels like you would rather pay less for health insurance and sort of be prepared to pay a big bill if you get sick, free bronze plan could be a pretty good deal for you. And then if you are someone who earns too much money to qualify for a subsidy, so you earn a little bit more than around $50,000 a year for a single person, around $100,000 for a family of four, then you have a lot of options. And I think you have a sort of complicated uh, shopping task before you. And your options are more expensive at that point. Yeah, because you're having to pay full freight. The good news for you is that there's variation locally, but overall premiums are not going up this year the way they have the last two years. So if you have a plan that you like, you might be able to find another plan, maybe the same one at about the same price. But what you need to do is you want to look at what's on the Obamacare exchange. And then you probably want to look at plans that follow the Obamacare rules but are offered off of the exchange. There may be some better deals out there, especially in the silver category. And one way that you can find out about those is by talking to a broker. You could also... If you know what carriers, what brands of plan you like, you can contact them directly and see what their offerings are. 
And then this year, for the first time, there are also going to be plans that are called short-term plans, but they're actually... Basically, <laughs> yeah, they're basically the same duration as these other plans. And we've talked about them a lot on the show. I think there are a lot of reasons to be very cautious about buying one of these plans. The advantage of a short-term plan is it might be a lot cheaper if you're an unsubsidized person than an Obamacare plan. There are two big downsides, though. One is that if you have a pre-existing condition, you probably are not going to be able to get one of these plans. And so they're really only available to people who are very healthy. And the second uh, catch is that they're going to cover less stuff. So not only might they have a lot of cost sharing, but they also will tend to cover fewer benefits. And again, this varies depending on where you live, but they might not cover prescription drugs. They might not cover mental health care, uh, maternity care, or other categories of benefits. And then they might have like lots of weird rules and fine print. So I think in general, those plans are something you should be cautious about when you're buying. But if you feel that you really can't afford anything in an Obamacare-compliant category, then you want to look at those extremely carefully and read all of the fine print. And it just goes back to sort of the, the you know, we spend so much of our time fighting about coverage. And, you know, the country has not yet grappled with costs. I mean, costs may be rising more slowly than they had been, et cetera, et cetera. But we still have a really expensive $3 trillion plus healthcare system. And the fact that if you are not subsidized and you're not getting insurance at work like the four of us do, um, it's really, really expensive. And there are, there are you know, difficult trade-offs for people. If you want a comprehensive plan, you have to pay a lot. And if you don't have a comprehensive plan, you ha- you're bearing some risk. If you get sick, you could you know, it's like the it's the pre-Obamacare kind of plan. And it could be really, um, it's a difficult choice. It's unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen to you. And and I think we're going to find people, you know, a few months from now who thought they had insurance and got sick and find out this really wasn't worth all that much. And then when they go back to those kinds of stories, which is what got us into Obamacare in the first place. You know, one of the, the big things that we've said at the beginning of every open enrollment since the first one in 2013 that didn't go so well, um, is that there's a lot of help available that you can go out and, and you know, and you have you mostly have had time to go out and figure out what it is that you need to do. Since as Marco points out, it's a very complicated decision. But this year, there's less time in most states and less help. Right, Anna? Right. There's, um, you know, the Trump administration has cut the outreach funding, essentially, and also the funding for navigators, which is the help that you're talking about. Um, so there, there's less money going to, you know, to different groups to be able to sit down, talk to people, help them figure out, you know, what those plans to go through all those situations that Margot um, brought up. And, you know, at the same time, there aren't there's they're not talking about it as much either. So, uh, you know, it's a very it's a shorter time period and people are learning about it probably um, a little less easily just because they're, you know, the administration isn't doing as many ads or things like that or trying to reach out to people. Um, I looked this morning. I did actually notice that the CMS administrator, Seema Verma, tweeted a few times on open enrollment. Um, so, you know, there was a, a little bit of conversation on it coming from, from her. They've at least acknowledged that it's happening. Right. <laughs> right. And there are some a- uh, advocacy groups, nonprofits that are also right. um, and some in some states they're doing outreach, California being sort of the the example that keeps showing itself. Um, so, so there are some resources. There are not as many resources as they are in the early days of, of the ACA. And, and this is really hard stuff. I mean, we, we're all people who deal with healthcare 
professionally. And it's hard if you, you know, we've all had experiences of friends of ours asking us for advice or family members. I remember when Medicare D, uh, the drug benefit came and, you know, Julie struggling to help her mother, who was also a health journalist. I remember that. These are really hard things that we struggle with. So somebody trying to buy insurance for the first time or who has a language or a barrier or, you know, just hasn't ever had to do this before or doesn't know how to do it. It's These are not easy decisions. And, you know, when you get your health insurance, you never really know what it's going to cover until way after you've had to find out the hard way. And obviously one of the, one of the big changes this year is that 2019, for the first time, people won't get a tax penalty if they don't buy insurance. So there's there's no more mandate except in, what is it, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and the District of Columbia, those people in, in those places. Still. I think there's one more. Oh, in Vermont next year. Oh, 20, Vermont next year, right. Right, is in 2019. No, no, I, think that, I think it. that's it for now. Um, but the open, even though there is no longer a penalty if you don't buy insurance, this very limited period of time in which you can buy insurance is still in effect. And so if you are someone who is not sure whether you want to carry insurance for the whole year, this is your only chance to get it. And so I think it really behooves everyone to take a look at what the choices are and consider enrolling in a plan. Yeah, if you drop it later, you're not going to get hit with a tax penalty. But if you miss out on the chance to buy it now, then the only thing that is available to you are these short-term plans that we talked about that may not have very comprehensive coverage. And, and you may or may, not, you be may, or may not be able to get it. Yeah. So, yes, which was actually the, the end of my sentence. Thank you, Marco. <laughs> which is that, that in most states, you're only going to have until December 15th to make this it's decision. It's basically six weeks, and people are not that well aware of that because it used to be a longer period you had into what? Originally, it was January 30th, and then they yeah, extended well, it, and it then it was to be the, right. It used to be 12 weeks, and now in most states it's six weeks. California still goes. There's there's a bunch of states, about half a dozen states, that still go into January. But for most people in most states, it's uh, today or November 1st to December 15th. So if you're a procrastinator, and most of us are, you cannot procrastinate until December 30th or 31st or January 15th. It's December. It's it's really short. It's December 15th, six weeks. Um, May I just say one more thing, which is this year there is more competition, which I think a lot of people think is good uh, because you have more choices of health insurers. That may mean that you have different choices of provider networks. And we know that more competition seems to be associated with lower prices for insurance. But, 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 uh, weirdly, because of the way the subsidies work, places that have more competition might actually result in higher uh, cost for someone who has a subsidy. And so I say this every year, and I just want to say it again because I think it's always so important even if you have a plan that you really, really like a lot, it is. I think it is really good, just best practice to go back into the exchange during open enrollment, see what all the options are, make sure that your plan is still the best buy. It may be that there is another plan that you would like just as well that is going to be substantially cheaper for you. And so just kind of renewing because inertia has taken over could end up being a costly decision. And I think that's particularly true this year because there's been some reshuffling as different plans come into the market and the amount of your of your premium that you're subsidy is going to buy may have changed. And the other interesting thing about this year is there's no bear counties. Like last year, we thought it would be like a sort of good Halloween costume. But, uh, <laughs> Ooh, like, darn. <laughs> Daily. Um, we also thought it would be good. So we, we were hoping somebody would dress up as the Texas verdict, but that's besides that. That's another that topic. hasn't happened right. yet. You guys um, yeah, have really, we, we really nerdy Halloween <laughs> ideas over at Politico. <laughs> one year we dressed up as the health law, but that's a, that's a, we'll talk about that offline We all later. went as the 10 essential benefits one right. year. Um, <laughs> we, had, we had somebody being the mandate with roses and a dinner jacket and candy. 
Um, the, the, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I, I digress. I mean, last year, as we sort of approached the beginning of open enrollment, there were all these bare counties popping up. Where, you know, Meaning count, counties where there's a county no... where there was zero Obamacare right. plan. Right. And um, and then, you know, regulators and state and federal officials were sort of, you know, running around trying to beg somebody to go in. And, and there was no bare county at the last... At the, at the end of the day, there was no bare county last year, but it required a lot of effort and it was touch and go in a whole bunch of places. It wasn't one. It was a bunch of places. There was no county in this in, in the entire country this year that came close to not having a single plan. There's still a lot that have one and there's some that only have two, but there's a big difference between something and nothing. And it does show that the insurance industry, you know, despite all the constant chaos and changes and uncertainty and repeals and regulatory changes and, you know, the chaos that keeps us employed, um, the, the insurance industry has more confidence in the markets, and they're in this year, and they're in in a, in a slightly bigger way. Not in a hugely bigger way, but there's a slight uptick, and they're everywhere. All right. I want to move on, but I'm going to give myself a last word on this. One of the reasons that there's – that. The good news is that there's insurance everywhere, is that the insurance companies are making a lot of money. And that's going back to what Margot said, why things are so expensive. So good news, bad news. Yeah, there's there are a lot of choices, but that's because the insurance companies have now been able to charge enough that they can make a profit and want to be there. Um, before we get to the elections, we have one piece of sort of breaking news. Wisconsin on Wednesday became the fifth state to get a waiver from the federal government to implement a work requirement for its Medicaid program. And the first state to get approved that did not expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care but Wisconsin's a little bit different, right? Who wants to who wants to explain how Wisconsin works? Wisconsin is a weird state because it had a, a Medicaid program for many years that has covered people uh, up to the poverty level and, in fact, above the poverty level. Even before Obamacare, they were covering this kind of working poor population as part of a Medicaid waiver. Called Badger, Badger Care. Care. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Everybody say it together now. <laughs> we just did. <laughs> and... When Obamacare went into effect and there was an option for states to expand their Medicaid to cover this basically the same population at this very favorable match where the federal government would initially pay the whole bill and then ultimately pay, you know, 90 percent of the bill, uh, Wisconsin, which was uh, sort of led by anti-Obamacare politicians, said no. We don't want to expand uh, Medicare, Medicaid under Obamacare. We don't want to accept this federal money. And actually what they did is they sort of pulled back. And so now they cover people right up to the poverty line. So it's not that dissimilar from the Medicaid expansion. But in the other Medicaid expansion states, people between the poverty line, 100 percent of the poverty line and 133 percent of the poverty line also get Medicaid. Uh, whereas in Wisconsin, those people qualify for subsidies and can buy insurance on the exchange. So it is true that um, Wisconsin has not expanded Medicaid, but they are essentially talking about the same population of people that would be subject to a work requirement that the other states that have gotten work requirements approved are talking about. And 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 what does this mean in Wisconsin? It, it doesn't look like it's going to be sort of quite as punitive as, as in uh, Arkansas. Arkansas, where we've talked about it, where people are, are already getting pushed off the rolls because they haven't been able to find a computer to fill out their work hours. Yeah, this is a much kind of softer work requirement. So Wisconsin is asking people to report their work hours, and it's like over, I think, a 48-month period. They If they report more than a certain number of months in which they haven't worked, then they have a six-month period where they can't enroll in Medicaid, but there are various things they can do to get back into compliance. And so this feels like a kind of kinder, gentler Medicaid work requirement where the state is trying to but create it's also, some... But it's, that's confusing, too, trying to keep track of your 48 months of 
work. I mean, I, I think there's still some. I don't think it's like Arkansas, but and also I think a lot of people cycle in and out of Medicaid as their employment changes. Yeah. You know, the idea that uh, there certainly are some people who stay in Medicaid for 48 months, but in this particular population that would be eligible for this work requirement, so these are higher earning individuals who don't have disabilities, who don't have children. Those are people who kind of tend to come in and out. So it's it's a little bit although weird. they're not really high earning because they're all by definition right. under 100 percent of they're poverty. They're all poor, but they're um, they're higher earning than. Uh, other Medicaid some, beneficiaries, yes. yeah. And I think the age range is up to the work requirement. I think 50. it's up to 40 through 49 or 50, which is um, not all st- – I don't think any state's doing it all the way up to 65. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think they're all – but I think this is a little bit on the younger side than some of them. Some of them, I think, are in their 50s. I may be wrong on that. Um, but it does – there is a lockout. I mean, they are, they are charging premiums. They're not a lot of money, but you know, these are people who don't have a lot of money, so there are monthly premiums. Um, and you can get locked out of Medicaid for, I believe, six months if you don't. It's hard to keep all the state requirements for 50 states, but I believe it's a six-month lockout um, if you don't pay your premiums, meaning you can't get Medicaid for six months. And Wisconsin did try to go a little bit further, too. I mean, it is kind of kinder and gentler, but on on the other side, they were trying to also implement drug testing for for Medicaid as well, which the administration um, said they got so much pushback to that they decided not to not to grant that part of the waiver as well. And interestingly, this waiver has, you know, we've reported, um, you know, uh, that this waiver was actually approved a few weeks ago and it was sort of kept hush-hush. I mean, we sort of knew it was, it wasn't publicly announced. And even when they did publicly announce it, there's not a lot of fanfare. There was no um, big press release. Seymour Varma didn't fly to Wisconsin. And, you know, Scott Walker is the governor of Wisconsin. He's been, um, you know, has very conservative views on, on, on entitlements and the social safety net and labor. And he is in a very tough race. Um, that's a very close race for reelection next week. And there's, you know, some who thought that they were sort of soft peddling this um, because for political reasons, although you know, you can never be sure why people soft-pedal things. And he's not been afraid of taking a tough line on things either. So, um, but I think there is, you can see this is this is a softer announcement. It's a quiet, it just came out as sort of an email to us yesterday. I saw it on Twitter. Yeah, but it's, but there's no... <laughs> From CMS. There's I mean, not, there, on... they didn't do fireworks. They didn't yeah. say, here, we, this is our goal. You know, we want work requirements. We want personal responsibility. We didn't see a, you know, a show about it yesterday. And the election is in a week. I wonder how it, how that how this plays, though. I mean, will it... I don't know how much attention people... Well, no, but I don't know whether it would help or hurt um, yeah, either I, candidate in the right, race. Right, That's yeah. I'm sort of I'm curious about the, the, the politics of work requirements. And, you know, he's had a tough line on, on health care, and he's gotten reelected before and, re- and beaten the recall. So I'm not, you know, it's sort of none of us are on the ground in Wisconsin. So it's hard to tell how big a political issue it is and who it helps. All right. Well, now let's talk about uh, the elections. We will start with the national picture. Um, how big a deal is it for health care, whether Republicans or Democrats uh, control the House and Senate? And how big a deal if, if as thing I think most likely at this point, Republicans control one and Democrats control the other? And we should say that we have witnessed surprises in recent years. Yes, we have. As we speak so on Thursday morning, as we speak on Thursday morning, the conventional wisdom is that the Democrats are going to take the House, and the Republicans will control, continue to control the Senate, and probably, maybe even pick up a seat or two. But you know, we live in really crazy times, and I think. Um, and there are a lot of really close races. There are this a lot year. of very, 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 very close races, and also a bunch of governors' races that did not look close have suddenly gotten close. So, so states and we'll get that, to that in a minute, right? But so that's just sort of let's just say it's it's Thursday morning. 
It's like 100 years between now and next Tuesday. <laughs> People are not going to hear this for two more. I mean, look at what's happened in our world just in the last week and a half, right? So that's the conventional wisdom. That's what's on the table. That's what we're discussing. And we could all throw up our hands next week and say, well, <laughs> you know. But if that is the case, let's if talk that, about, if that let's assume that happens, right. um, then I think you're going to see a lot more investigations on the House side and, and you know, maybe not just investigations, but hearings to highlight some of the stuff we've been talking about um, on the ACA. If Democrats take the House, you know, they'll want to look into this and, you know, decreased outreach and the navigator funding, um, these short term, not short term plans um, <laughs> and and drug prices as well, um, because, you know, that while drug prices have been uh, sort of a big talk of the Trump administration, they haven't, you know, felt like the drug makers have really had to answer as much um, as maybe they should, um, at least in Congress. You know, Trump has called some of them out on Twitter, but I think they want to want to start taking a harder look at some um, some stuff that they could do that they think maybe Trump would be um, amenable to. So, I mean, they think they, they might have a chance to get him to kind of come back on the whole um, drug price of, negotiation. Yeah, my question is this. I mean, this could be something Trump has talked about it a lot. We had, you know, we famously had triangulation during the Clinton administration where Bill Clinton thought that making deals with the Republican Congress would help his reelection. And to some extent it did. I mean, could we see that with Trump doing deals with Democrats? I think it's possible. On drug prices, um, I, I think yeah, it's on possible. Drug prices, yeah. I not, think, not the entire no. agenda of everything everybody's talking about, but could right. we see some targeted drug pr- I mean, Trump has actually, you know, announced specific proposals now. And could we see some action on drug prices? I think you could see some actions on drug prices, uh, you know. I think what they're hoping is that you could see further action than even what he's announced, because there was a point in time where he supported direct you know, government negotiation in the Medicare Part D program. And he's backed off of that because Republican leaders obviously do not like that policy. And, you know, I think that Democrats see the possibility of convincing him to cut a deal. Um, I have no idea how or what <laughs> would be offered up. Um, but you know, I, I think that that could be a possibility. I don't think you're going to see, though, the hard part would be if the Senate, of course, d- is not flipped. If the Senate stays Republican, I mean, it's going to be really, really hard to pass any legislation. Um, and so I think there'd, you know, there'd have to be some I, I imagine like immigration suddenly comes into this deal making or something bigger um, if that was actually to happen. And it's a long shot. I'm, like, I'm not not saying it's going to. But I, I could see the Senate going for some modest drug price. I mean, there's some there's some Senate Republicans who have been voicing concerns about the price of certain drugs, including things like insulin. Mm-hmm. Um, there it's it is not a purely partisan issue. It's a consumer issue. We know from the polls that Republicans are concerned about drug prices, as are Democrats. Republicans and Democrats both get sick and Republicans and Democrats have to go to the drugstore and pay large amounts of money. So I, I mean, I do can something happen on drug prices? You know, something humongous? No. Can something happen with a Democratic Congress, a Republican pr- president who wants this, and a senator who sort of has to go along? Um, I think so. I think it could. I also think surprise bills could come up. I think there could surprise be medical, medical bills, bills. Or, or surprises to us. <laughs> There's no surprises. We've all covered. They, they just reappear. Um, the the 
you know, I think there could be something on surprise medical bills where these these situations where people think they're in network and come across an emergency room doctor or a uh, anesthesiologist or an assistant surgeon or whatever, where you you think you're covered and you end up with a hundred thousand dollar bill, finding out that you're not. And that that's a place where we already see a piece of legislation that was sort of cast as a discussion draft, so it's not like totally final, but it was released a few weeks ago with both Republican and Democratic uh, senators signing their name to it. And there's a second bill on this issue that's coming just from Democrats in the Senate. But you get the sense that this is an issue, sort of a consumer issue, not very ideological, where you might see some consensus. Yeah, because servers like to talk about shopping around and, you know, skin in the game. But, you know, when you're unconscious, you just can't do a lot of shopping. <laughs> so what bleeding ha- profusely. You know, so, you just got to get sewn up. So uh, notwithstanding that surprising things can happen, what happens if Republicans keep both the House and the Senate? They try to repeal again if they mm-hmm. have the numbers. Is that, I mean, and that, yeah, I mean, that would be, do, do we think they really, I mean, there's been talk back and forth uh, about whether or not they would actually try to bring this up. I think it's hard to rule out the possibility that they might try it, but I would just raise some cautions that I think it will be quite difficult for them to do it. And I know we had this conversation two years ago, but I think even more so now, uh, if the Republicans hold the House, I think it's reasonable to think that they're going to lose some seats. Uh, and so... That means that they need to really all be on board in the House in order to pass a bill uh, because of the nature of how they'll do it through this budget reconciliation process. Like the House has to go first. They're going to have to agree on a bill and pass a bill. And the last time they, you know, they passed it very narrowly and they let a lot of Republican lawmakers vote against it. Uh, One person I was talking with this week reminded me also that in order to do a reconciliation bill, before you even get to the health care part, you have to pass a budget that includes reconciliation instructions. And if you imagine, again, a very kind of narrow Republican House majority getting all of them to agree on a budget that not doesn't just say we're going to repeal Obamacare, but says all kinds of other things about what the spending priorities are, could be quite difficult. We know, you know some very conservative Republicans who kind of have taken a hard line on budget and spending are likely to keep their seats. And are they going to be able to come together with the rest of the caucus to do that? We don't know who the leadership in the House is going to be. Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, is retiring from the House and uh, I don't know if you guys have good guesses about who is going to replace him, but I think that there is definitely uh, some open questions there. And then the final thing that I will mention is, you know, we have seen in the closing weeks of this campaign a large number of Republican incumbents, uh, members of the House who are running for reelection and also members of the House who are running for the Senate, who have been uh, quite loudly proclaiming that they support protections for Americans with preexisting conditions and that they promise that they will always do this. We've seen the president making similar promises now. And saying that he'd do a better job than he'll the do Democrats. He'll do a better job than the Democrats. So there... You know, I don't want to pretend that the Affordable Care Act is the only way that you could keep that promise. I think there are possibly other vehicles for protecting people with preexisting conditions. There are different interpretations of what that means. But I do think that a lot of these candidates have sort of put themselves on the record in a very public way as being concerned about these issues. And the previous bills that they worked on, the bills that came to the House and the Senate floors last year, and the Graham-Cassidy bill that was never quite made it to the Senate floor but was talked about a lot as like maybe what the next big effort looks like, all have provisions that would tend to weaken the current protections for people with pre-existing conditions. So, you know, I just think it's a, it's a tough road to hoe. I, I, I agree. It's it depends very, on the numbers. It's it depends, very possible it they depends, could try. It depends on the numbers in the Senate more than the House. They muscled it through the House. If they lose the House, one reason they lose the House is because of Obamacare, the failed repeal attempt, and the pre-existing conditions. If they keep the House, 
that's not going to matter so much. They're not going to be as afraid of it. Well, they might feel emboldened, right? Too. So, and and you know, but I, I agree I, with Margot. I think if they have you know a six-member majority instead of a forty-member majority, it's going to be that. It's going to be harder. the map. It's going to be which districts. Right. It's going to be uh, the moderates left. The people who voted against it aren't there anymore. Yeah, they're so, the ones who are going to lose right, their seats. They're the ones who who didn't even run the Charlie Dance. They just said, "I'm retiring. I'm out of here." So you know, it's it's. The numbers in the House and the ideology of those numbers, but it's I think the the numbers really matter in the Senate because they didn't have the votes in the Senate, yeah. so they'd and have to they pick could, up the numbers could get better in the Senate. They'd have to pick up a couple scenario. of seats. They're probably not going to get those two votes to Mikowski and, and, and Collins to flip. Right. But you know, it just really you know if if there's a situation where they hold the House and they pick up two or three seats in the Senate, because if they hold the House, that may be a sign that they're going to also over you know outperform expectations of the Senate. I don't. I think if they had the numbers, they'd try it. If they don't, if it's basically status quo, they they you know it it they don't necessarily want to spend a whole year failing again. But if they if they have a big night and capturing keeping the House means a big night. You know, it means a, a mandate for Trump. It means, you know, a lot of sp- people will wake up surprised on Wednesday if it's a big night in that sense. And if they if they call the House and they pick up seats in the Senate and they hold these governor's races, yeah, I think they would go after it again. All right, well, and Mitch McConnell oh. has said that he wants to do this again. So we have some sense that the Senate is in the Senate leadership who, you know, McConnell will continue to be the Republican leader, we imagine, uh, that, that they have some openness to moving forward there. But I think I think it's tough. I think it's tougher than it was last year. All right. Well, let's move on to the states. We have way more that we can talk about here, but that's why we'll have plenty more time to do it. Um, we've talked about this before, but it's worth reminding our audience that Medicaid expansion is directly on the ballot in four states, four pretty red states. Um, could it actually pass? Yes. Mm-hmm. And Montana is a funny one. So in the three states that is on the ballot, Utah, Idaho Nebraska. and Nebraska, it can certainly pass in all three. We don't. There's not great polling. We don't know for sure. But the outgoing governor of of, of Idaho this week, Butch Otter, endorsed it, and the um, likely incoming governor, um, the Republican who's who's likely to win, has said that if the voters go for it, he will in fact he won't block it. He'll go along with it. So, unlike Maine, right? Unlike Maine. So um, and Utah, uh, they, if the, if it voted in Utah, they would. I'm pretty sure that the governor would go with it too. I, I know less about Nebraska, so yes, those three states could could. It, we don't know for sure. They actually all look pretty strong now. The the sort of the feeling is that they're all going to win. There's this bizarre thing going on in Montana, which has a Democratic governor. It's a purple state, and they've already expanded. and they have expanded. And what they're doing is a, a, a financing mechanism to continue the expansion to pay for the expansion. But since it's tobacco's tax, we all know how much the tobacco companies like tobacco taxes, so they're fighting it very hard. So there's this odd situation where you could get expansion passed in three extremely conservative states and have a big blow to it in because of the tobacco element in in Montana. I don't think we're going to know until, you know, until we know next week, but Montana I think is pretty close. And I think one of the reasons they're so positive about the um, those three states you know, getting this done is because there's not a, been a whole lot of opposition, not a whole lot of spending against it. And, you know, and that's kind of been the contrast when you brought up Montana, that it sort of reminded me of that as they're the ones up against, you know, a really hard opposition because the tobacco companies don't want a $2 tax per pack, essentially, to fund this. There's well, also, I think we should talk about Maine because Maine did pass a yes, voter referendum last uh, year. Last year, that and it's also it's fun to talk about Maine. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a very weird uh, situation. So the voters did pass this uh, this voter referendum that said expand Medicaid, but oh, the, oh, big. It was like a sixty percent vote. Yeah. Uh, yes. The 
governor who is term limited and who will be leaving at the end of this year has just sort of fought it tooth and nail despite courts telling him that he needs to enforce what the voters said. And so uh, there's going to be a new governor. We don't know. It's actually that's a pretty close race, too. Uh, I believe there's an independent yes, candidate there's a three-way race who dropped Maine. out this week and endorsed the Democratic candidate. I think there's still another third-party candidate in that race. It's, it's a little bit of a complicated race. But uh, if the Democrat wins, I think it's pretty clear that they would try to move forward with the Medicaid expansion. If the Republican wins, I think it's a little bit less clear. But it's a lot less clear. It'll stay. He said he would continue the fight in court. So I mean, but eventually, the court, but the court cases continue. So you yeah. know, I think uh, even though the Medicaid expansion is not on the ballot explicitly in Maine, I think it's a good example of a state where the election is really going to matter about whether or not it happens soon or later or never at all. Well, I mean, you're anticipating right. my next question, which is there are other ways that Medicaid could get expanded, and that's if some currently Republican-led states were to turn Democratic. And there are a whole lot in play. And or, well, and or the legislature. So so where do we think that's most likely, Anna? That's what you were about to say, right? Well, yeah, I was I was just thinking, you know, there are there are you know, a bunch of other states where this is a big deal. I think this week we're mostly hearing about Stacey Abrams in Georgia, who's made this a big piece of her campaign um, that expanding Medicare, or, I'm sorry, Medicaid. expanding Medicaid is not you know, it's good for the Medicaid population. It's helpful, um, but also for the state, because um, as we've said before, states that aren't, they're just sort of leaving that money on the table since the federal government is funding a lot of this expansion. Um, and then, you know, there there are other ones, um, something uh, Andrew Gillum is running on in Florida. Um, he's talked about a Medicaid expansion a lot as well. Um, so there are other, I think there are other states that where you could add, so Avalier took a look at this um, and said that I think it was 2.7 million people could um, could be added to the Medicaid rolls because of the possibility of those ballot initiatives and the governors, um, if any of those are flipping, that are really focused on Medicaid. They're now, um, we thought there were three in play, and they're now six or seven in play. So including places like Kansas, like who would have thought, right? I- well, Iowa. Um, Kansas is important to, to mention, though, because yeah, the Kansas, legislature wanted to do it. Right. And yeah, the, the legislature passed it. it. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the other thing is, even if these Democrats win the governorships, some of them will still be facing Republican-controlled legislatures. Probably they will be less Republican. Possibly some of them will flip. But also, you know, you have the situation where you had in Virginia where the, the, the a Democrat governor, where the, when one chamber flipped and the other one became very, very close, it was still Republican control. And they ended up, you know, they saw what the voters wanted. The reason the Republicans lost so much in Virginia at the state level last year was largely because of Medicaid. So if you have a Democratic governor and a more evenly distributed legislature, just because you get a governor, a Democratic governor, does not mean that Medicaid suddenly springs up the next morning. There's still a legislative process. The chances of getting through the legislature in some of these states is better. And this is, I think, Medicaid is like almost the most classic example in our modern era of why local elections are really important. You know, whether or not your state has expanded Medicaid or not is a really, really big deal for healthcare access, for financing for rural hospitals, for lots of things. For treating the opioid epidemic. For treating the opioid epidemic. And, you know, it really comes down to local elections. In a lot of these states, it has to do not just with the governor, but with the state legislature. In Georgia, because they've had such a crisis of rural hospitals, there's a large segment of the traditionally Republican, pro-Republican pro business community that has been pro-Medicaid expansion for a couple of years. And there's a group that's been trying, I think their state chamber of commerce or some of their local chambers of commerce have been pushing for Medicaid expansion. So if C. Abrams does, and who has a bipartisan track record, I mean, she's she's seen as quite liberal, but as a state legislator, she also cut deals. 
you know, could she work on Medicaid as a business economic issue, helping rural communities and rural hospitals with Republican business partners? Yes, that is a scenario that could happen in Georgia. I'm not saying it's the definite scenario, but I can totally see that in Georgia. They, they've had a lot of trouble with their, their um, you know, they have a couple of big teaching hospitals and then a lot of struggling rural hospitals, some of which have already closed. All right. Well, we're, we will know a lot more about this next week. Um, so that is our news for now. Uh, now we're going to go to the Bill of the Month interview with Barbara Fader Ostrov. If you have a medical bill you'd like to submit for the series we're doing with NPR, I will post the link on the podcast page at khn.org. So here's my talk with Barb. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my California colleague, Barbara Fader-Ostrov, senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News and California Healthline, who wrote the latest Bill of the Month story. Thank you for making time for this, Barb. Thank you. So this month's patient had something I think a lot of us can identify with, an allergy, right? Who is she and how did a rash and some outpatient tests lead to a bill that could buy a low-level luxury car? Well, our patient is Janet Winston. She's 56 years old, and she's from Eureka, California. She's an English professor at Humboldt State University. She had a rash that wouldn't go away, and she decided, because the uh, allergists and dermatologists in her area tended to be pretty booked, she lives in a rural area, that she would go down to Stanford for care. She's from the uh, Bay Area and has often gone down there for care before. Her doctor told her that her uh, skin testing for her rashes might be expensive, but she had no idea that it would come to $48,000 for a skin test. That means no needles, no cutting, no medical devices, just taping substances to her back and looking for reactions a couple of days later. So, and this was an in-network doctor, right? Absolutely. This uh, this patient had fantastic insurance. She's a state employee. She's covered uh, by CalPERS, which offers very rich benefits to state workers. And uh, she went in network. Her doctor told her she had to have the test in her office so she couldn't shop around for another lab. And she really couldn't shop around or reduce the price of her procedure at all. So in the end, how much was she asked to pay of that $48,000? Her insurer paid about $11,000, which is a lot, even for a negotiated rate. The uh, amount she was asked to pay was about $3,100, and she ended up negotiating that down to about $1,500. But most experts say that's even excessive for a patient's share of cost for this type of procedure. How much should this type of procedure cost? These were just basically skin tests to see what she was allergic to, right? That's right. And she did have a fairly complex case, and she did see a leading expert in what we call contact dermatitis, which is a fancy name for skin rashes. But what this should have cost at a regular doctor's office is at most $35 per allergen, according to the billing experts that we talk to. Um, and that's allowing for the expensive Bay Area region and academic medical center where she was tested. Medicare pays even less. They pay about 4 to $5 per allergen, and health providers always bill them for about $12 per allergen. Just to recap, it was over 100 allergens tested, right? Correct. She had 119 allergens tested on her back, and then she brought in some skin lotions for her uh, doctor to put on her back and test for reaction. So do we have any idea why Stanford charges so much? 
Well, it's kind of because they can. Stanford has a tremendous amount of market power in the region. They own a lot of doctors' practices, clinics, and hospitals all over the Bay Area. And they are a must-have for most insurers. And the insurer in this case paid what it was, what the negotiated rate was. And when I went to CalPERS and asked them, they said, yes, we've had a few other cases where we paid out the maximum, which was up to $13,000 for allergy skin patch testing, which is incredible. Wow. As you said before, you know, the patient did everything right. She went to an in-network provider. She asked how much it would cost in advance. And yet she still got socked with a pretty big bill. Um, why, why did this happen to her? Well, you know, it's just one of those things where people don't have a lot of information before they undergo medical procedures. So she, yes, she absolutely did everything that she could. Um, Her insurer did pay up what it was supposed to, but she had a share of cost. She wasn't with an HMO, so she had to pay 20% of um, the negotiated rate, and that's why her bill was so high. So if you're a patient, what do you do if you live in a a high-cost area like, you know, the Bay Area around San Francisco? There are some online sources where you can check out prices for procedures, but their data is limited. You can try to negotiate the price up front or find out what it will cost, or you can call your insurer to see if they'll give you a price or if they have options, as some do, to check out other prices for other providers in the area or other labs. All right. Barbara Fader-Ostrov, this month's Bill of the Month, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the link to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Margot, why don't you go first this week? Sure. I wanted to share an article from The Federalist from Chris Jacobs called How an Obscure Regulatory Change Could Transform American Health Insurance. And as you can imagine, an obscure regulatory change is just the kind of thing that gets me really excited. Um, (laughs) There was a new rule that the Trump administration put out last week that uh, we haven't talked about that would expand the ability. Actually, we uh, talked about it last week. You weren't here. All right. Well, without me. But it would enable employers to basically give their workers pre-tax money to go out and buy their own individual health insurance. And I think it's a really interesting rule because it's sort of a continuation of an idea that has been very popular among Republican politicians, but also has been popular among Democrats, too. And there are provisions in the ACA that were sort of designed in this way. The idea is it should be easier for people to get their own insurance, have it be portable, let them have choice, as opposed to having our current system where your employer is the provider of health insurance for so many Americans. And I don't know that this uh, obscure regulatory change is going to transform American health insurance, as Chris says. I I think we'll see. Its effect may be more marginal, but I think this is a policy change that's kind of a shift in this direction of pushing more people into the individual insurance market instead of the employer market. And, you know, if there was kind of a tipping point on that, we would have a very different kind of healthcare system, I think. One thing that I think is interesting also is it's just one of several recent examples of sort of mixed messages from the Trump administration about how they feel about Obamacare, because on the one hand, they seem to really not like it. They've been criticizing it. They've been pulling funding from it and talking about it as an inevitable failure, uh, you know, 
bringing forward uh, proposals that would give people more options to kind of work their way around it. On the other hand, they seem to really be championing this idea that people should be able to buy their own individual insurance. And under the terms of this rule, you basically can only take your employer dollars to buy an Obamacare compliant plan. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, they're kind of pushing people out. On the other, with the other hand, they're pushing people in. And uh, it'll just be interesting to see. And I think we mentioned this last week. If, if this were to work as envisioned and people, you know, with jobs go into the individual market. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people with jobs in the individual market, but sort of the more working people you have in a market, just overall, demographically, the healthier that market is. Uh, So I actually heard that in the podcast last week. And having read the rule, like the nerd that I am, I I slightly disagree. Uh, Because of the kind of cost calculation that employers will have to make, under the employer mandate, they have to provide what's considered affordable coverage to their workers. And what the rule says is that the same affordability test will apply to purchasing a lowest cost silver plan on the exchange. And so what that means is that if you tend to have a healthier than I'm sorry, a population of workers that are healthier than the typical exchange participant, it is going to be cheaper for you to buy health insurance and pass that affordability test. If you have a workforce that is sicker than the individual market population, then it is going to be cheaper for you to give them those dollars to go buy individual market coverage. And so I think there may be various results, but I think overall, and the Trump administration acknowledged this, the employers that are going to be most likely to send their workers into the individual market are going to be those who are sicker. And so I think it could actually be more more humans, more people in the individual market, but potentially a sicker group. We'll have to see. Anna. Um, so this is from my colleagues at Bloomberg Business Week. Your DNA is out there. Do you want law enforcement using it? Um, it's by Drake Bennett and Kristen Brown. Um, it's a fascinating um, kind of murder mystery wrapped up in how all of this um, has, has has happened where we're using our, our um, genealogy data and DNA testing to kind of um, find killers essentially and um, the you know it looks at it, it kind of focuses on you know this one um, awful case. I think it was in the 80s where um, a young couple was killed and, you know, kind of uses that to look at this proliferation of, of using um, these genealogy websites. So people are, you know, sending in their, their DNA sample essentially and getting tested. Um, and, you know, you can, if only a very small group of people do that, you can kind of figure out and link to crimes um, for many, you know, for even if that person who committed the crime did not actually submit their DNA. Um, and so this looks at that through, really, there's this one woman who's a genealogist um, and this one company um, who has been sort of at the forefront of all of this. So it uses the story of this young couple that was murdered um, you know, to also talk about the people who have really been bringing this to to what it is since we since we saw the Golden State killer um, caught through this kind of method um, there's you know there there seems to be kind of an increase in in wanting to to look at cold cases this way cool Joanne there's a piece in the Atlantic by Amanda Mull called the harder better faster stronger language of dieting and it's about how Silicon Valley is changing how we think about dieting instead of thinking about dieting it's all about biohacking um, and uh, the article also talked about the way um, it would affect gender because women are more the traditional diety people and men 
might get into this biohacking thing. And uh, it says that, you know, where bodies might have previously been idealized as personal temples, they're now just another device to be managed and one whose use people are expected to master. Optimizing our performance instead of watching our finger, figure biohacking our personal ecosystem instead of eating salads. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> um, some great, some great uh, stock art. Yeah, that piece as well. <laughs> yes. Yes. it's actually it's a very good piece. Um, my I'm not stro- sure I think yeah. it makes any change at the end of the day because you know maybe like your Fitbit six weeks and then it's under the bed. But uh, my um, yeah, still yeah, on. yeah, yeah. But um, we'll we'll see. All right. Well, my story is from my KHN colleague Rachel Bluth, and it ran in the Washington Post this week. It's called "For the Disabled: A Doctor's Visit Can Literally Be an Obstacle Course, and the Laws Can't Help." It's about how the Americans with Disabilities Act, which has been law for almost 30 years, requires lots of places of business to be accessible to those with disabilities, but doctors' offices isn't exactly one of them, or at least not important parts of doctors' offices like exam tables or scales, speaking of dieting. I actually covered the passage of the ADA back in 1990, and this has been a long-time issue. Uh, Apparently, there were new regulations that were about to be issued to address this, but they were canceled as part of the Trump administration's overall anti-regulatory push. So at least for now, there is nothing in sight to help these folks use medical services, but at least we are talking about it. So that is our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sanger Katz. At Anna Edney. At Joanne Kennan. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.